Hello, thanks for coming in the name of as the organizer Multimedia Institute Zagreb. And for some of you, but this is the first time being in Mama for others, uh, not the first time, I, I hope. Um, this has been now the third conference where this year we organize. Um, and unfortunately, because of the budget cuts, this will be the last for this year. But nevertheless, we somehow succeeded to, um, to pull it through with the, with the people uh, we highly esteem. And we hope that um, will cause your stereo um, interest for the following two days. The schedule and also the slots we have uh, planned relaxed. So this means that we'll have a plenty of time both for the speakers with lectures of about talks of about 45 minutes to one hour, and then uh, more 45 minutes at least a discussion. For both of the days, we also have planned a round table at uh, 1900, which would be a more informal one in the sense that we'll try somehow to wrap up some some, some of the topics involved in the in the talk and also of some uh, general interest in uh, regards of the materials theory in the future. Okay. Uh, yes, so far me, uh, now Nathan will say about something, uh, introduce uh, the topic itself of the, of the workshop or symposium, and then we'll start with um, Miran Bozovic's uh, lecture, please. Uh, so first I just want to thank uh, Petar and, and Tom and everyone at MAMA uh, for putting this uh, event together. I've been attending conferences and events here for a couple of years, and I've always just really appreciated the commitment of MAMA to you know, experimental programming and what seems to me like a very open intellectual culture here in Zagreb. So it's a real honor to be able to help to organize an event here. Um, and I also just want to thank our four speakers uh, for joining us this weekend. So Graham Harmon, uh, Peter Hallward, Miran Bojevic and Martin Hagelin, uh, who are joining us from, from London, Cairo, uh, Ljubljana, and, and Paris. Um, so the theme of the workshop this weekend is, is 21st century materialism. Uh, and we conceive the event as an attempt, basically, to sort of assess what's going on um, in contemporary philosophical materialism in the present uh, and think about where it might be headed in the future. Um, and part of the impetus for the workshop, part of the idea behind it, uh, was the sense that there's a fairly broad materialist consensus um, in contemporary continental philosophy um, at the beginning of the 21st century. Um, a sense that it's become almost as though you know, claiming a materialist position uh, has become a sort of prerequisite for philosophical credibility um, these days, uh, at least, again, in continental philosophy. So even someone like Alain Badiou, for example, um, who's a fairly resolute an orthodox Platonist um, still claims a materialist orientation for his program, or even people who theorize so-called immaterial labor, um, even though what they're theorizing is supposedly immaterial, uh, they still claim a, a materialist orientation. Um, and one way to think about the, the context of that situation or that sort of conjuncture, uh, the sense that materialism has achieved a kind of dominant position in contemporary continental philosophy is to think about Althusser, uh, thinking about the relationship between materialism and idealism in the 1960s. Um, so for Althusser, there were two philosophical orientations that constituted and exhausted the philosophical field, uh, materialism 
and idealism. Um, and in the philosophical conjuncture that Althusser theorized in the 1960s, he could claim that, as he put it, materialism was massively dominated by idealism. And so the task of the materialist philosopher in the 60s for Althusser was to defend materialism against its domination by idealism. Um, and so then Althusser could claim that doing materialist philosophy was the class struggle in theory, etc. Um, but it seems to me that today the situation has shifted perhaps almost to the point of reversal. Uh, so again, that it's materialism which is far and away, I think, in a dominant uh, position. And so what that entails, I think, is then a switch in the task of the materialist philosopher, perhaps. Um, so instead of the, the crucial thing being to draw a line uh, between materialism and idealism, or to defend materialism against idealism, perhaps the more important task is to think about different articulations of materialist philosophy, distinctions between different kinds of materialist positions, different kinds of materialist orientations. Um, so the idea of the symposium uh, was to bring together um, a few people, a few different thinkers who are in the process of constructing new positions um, within the materialist tradition or reevaluating the history of uh, philosophical materialism or in the case of, of Graham Harman uh, someone who articulates an anti-materialist position um, from a, a realist position rather than an idealist position um, so Graham hopefully can offer us a, a counterpoint to the, to the domination of um, uh, materialism in the contemporary philosophical conjuncture but from a realist rather than an idealist Stance and help us to think about what that would entail. Uh, so I don't want to say too much uh, right now about um, the particular work of our four uh, speakers because they're going to be introduced separately before each of their talks. Um, but I think that they'll bring together a really interesting conjunction of, of different uh, approaches um, and different styles. Uh, so I'll just step aside then and let uh, Petar introduce our first speaker, uh, Miran Bozhevich. Um, and thanks again for everyone. So it is my great pleasure that for the first speaker we have a person coming from the nearest point from Ljubljana. But so far I know and so far he told me this will probably be the first talk ever of his in Zagreb. Miran Bozovic from Ljubljana, uh, part of the famous um, Ljubljana theoretical psychoanalysis group. We have Slavoj Žižek, Dora Lenka, Zupanjic and many more. Um, Miran is uh, particularly interested in the history of materialist uh, theory and philosophy, uh, mainly in the early modern one. And this is uh, unfortunately also the only, the only English um, book uh, yet available of Miran's uh, on the early modern uh, f f philosophy. In Slovene, and partly also in our small library, we have many other articles of his and uh, also his uh, latest monograph on uh, uh, on Diderot. This this will also be a part of Miran's talk today. And somehow also in uh, scheduling this event, by chance um, it came out that our first speaker and I will say no more as um, we'll actually introduce the topic of 21st century materialism by way of talking of 18th century materialism of, <laughs> materialism of 24th century. So somehow we have uh, the 21st century left out, but somehow we hope that it will focus at least then um, during our 
proceedings. Thank you very much, and please, I'll give the floor to Miran. Uh, just one thing, I'm not, not, not sure if, uh, if we will need the, the microphone, okay. if you, maybe I'll, we shall put it aside. Uh. Correction. I will first discuss the 18th century materialism and I will end with 25th century materialism. Um, so in doing that, I'll be, I'll be focusing my attention to the paradoxical deity that briefly appears on the scene of... Maybe we need it after all. Okay, okay. We just need the microphone. Okay. So I'll, um, I'll focus my attention to, um, um, on the deity paradoxical one that uh, briefly appears in Diderot, Denis Diderot's D'Alembert's dream. Um, now, widely considered to be Diderot's philosophical masterpiece, this work, consisting of three dialogues, written mostly in 1769, is a highly unusual piece of writing in which Diderot's own philosophical system is expounded not by someone who would be cautiously choosing his words, waving the arguments with care and thoughtfully refuting the objections as befits a formal philosophical treatise, but by the delirious d'Alembert, who is ranting thoughtlessly in his sleep and he even experiences a sexual climax in the process, and in this way comes to develop the central themes of Diderot's materialism. Now, an insightful and indispensable commentary is provided by the medical doctor, Bordeaux, whom the Lambert mistress, Mademoiselle de Lespinas, who has been noting down the words of her sleeping lover, summons to his bedside because she fears he has lost his mind. Now, furthermore, while in the first dialogue, where the Druze been trying to win him over to materialism, the Lambert remained a more or less firmly convinced spiritualist dualist, believing the soul to be an immaterial spiritual entity, in the second dialogue, he undergoes a philosophical conversion in his dream, uh, that is, conversion from Cartesian dualism to Diderotian materialism. So, in D'Alembert's dream, materialist monism is presented quite literally as the spiritualist dualist's nightmare. Now, it certainly comes as a, as a surprise that in the text which has already in its first paragraph done away with the concept of spiritual God and the traditional concept notion of immaterial soul, but there nevertheless appears a sort of deity. Now, both immaterial soul and spiritual God are rejected in a single stroke as agents with contradictory attributes, and all functions traditionally ascribed to them are taken over by matter, the only existing substance in the universe. Now, matter produces life and develops sensibility and thought by itself. The transition from the inert matter to a sentient being and from a sentient being to a thinking being occurs solely by means of the so-called material agents and through purely mechanical operations, that is, quote, without the intervention of any heterogeneous or unintelligible agent such as spiritual god or immaterial soul. Now, a typical objection of the Dose materialism to spiritualism can be found in the most concise form in Observations sur Amsterdam, where, where we read, quote, I have never seen sensibility, soul, thought, and reasoning produce matter, 
But I have seen a hundred times, a thousand times, the inert matter transform itself into active sensibility, into soul, into thought, and into reasoning solely by means of material agents and or intermediaries. A similar idea can be found in conversation with a Christian lady, where the materialist philosopher counters the Christian lady's claim that God made the world, or in other words, that spirit made matter, by saying, quote, if a spirit can make matter, why should matter not be able to make a spirit, end of quote. And he corroborates his materialist position simply by saying that he sees matter do so, that is to say, produce spirit every day. That is, while no one has yet seen a spirit produce matter, or God create the material world, we can, by contrast, see matter produce a spirit every day with our own eyes. That is, we can see bodies develop their own soul, and perhaps at some point in the future, we might even be able to see the material world produce God before our eyes. Now, incidentally, the empirical support that spiritualism lacks that is, no one has ever seen God create world um, as an emblematic example of a spirit that produces matter, is precisely what, according to David Hume, a proponent of natural religion lacks in order to be able to make the inference from the universe as effect to God as its cause and to his attributes, an analogy with a man and his product, such as houses, ships, and so forth. Now, in order to be able to make such an inference, the experimental theist would require, says Hume, experience of the origin of worlds. But whereas we've all seen men build houses and ships, by contrast, no one has yet seen God create worlds. Or, quote, to quote Philo from Dialogue Concerning Natural Religion, have worlds ever been formed under your eye? Now this, however, is not the only affinity between Diderot and Hume. Um, namely, Diderot's material God which I'm going to discuss um, later on, who is subject to vicissitudes and accordingly grows old and dies. Um, this kind of God closely resembles the deities that briefly appear or that are briefly discussed by Hume in his dialogues, namely the so-called infant deity, the superannuated deity, and so forth. That is, to the deities who are themselves subjected to generation and corruption. Now, these similarities between Diderot and Hume may be purely coincidental, but then again, they might not be. Uh, namely, during his stay in Paris, Hume frequented the philosophy salon of Baron de Olbach, which was regularly attended also by Diderot. Now, as it may be assumed on the basis of a letter in which Diderot enthusiastically reproduces the words of the Scottish sage, the letter undoubtedly found in the circle of Holbach's materialistic friends a receptive and grateful audience for his unorthodox ideas on religion, on mortality, of the soul, on suicide, and so on. That is for ideas from those of his works which he had not dared to publish and which appeared only after his death, for example, dialogues concerning natural religion, or if already published, they were frantically withdrawn from sale, for example, the two notorious essays of the immortality of the soul and of suicide. Now, um, to back to Diderot. Now, it seems that there are roughly two tendencies discernible in this so-called perpetual flux that governs this Diderot's vast ocean of matter. Now, one is the tendency towards self-organization of matter on ever higher levels, in ever higher and more complex organisms, 
even in yet entirely unknown and never before seen superorganisms. That is, living entities combine into unities, which in turn combine into higher unities, and so forth. This unified into a new whole. Each of the parts loses its former self, and ideally, at each level, the resulting whole should develop awareness of itself as a unity. Now, if this happens at the level of the universe, that is, if all entities making up the universe amalgamate to form a whole, a single entity, an individual consciousness, an individual conscious of its own entity, then the universe itself can be said to be God. Now, judging by D'Alembert's dream fantasy, nature or material universe is currently deep, that's we are in the mid of 18th century, uh, when this um, universe is currently deep in the process of self-organization, that is the process that might well result in the emergence of the consciousness of the whole or in the materialization of God. Now, D'Alembert sees the entire nature as one entity, as a single individual, the so-called grand two, grand two, the great whole. Now, entities making up this great whole, including D'Alembert himself, have clearly lost much of their individualities. They are gradually becoming desubstantialized and utterly desubjectivated. In short, they are becoming one with nature or material universe. Now, I shall focus my attention um, on the moment when the entities making up the great whole or nature gradually lose their former selves and the whole increasingly takes over. Now, admittedly, the universe is not yet aware of itself as one entity. There is not yet, not yet a consciousness of the whole, but the process of subjectivation of the universe or the great whole appears to be well underway. Now, in the past, that's what, that was one tendency. Now, in the past, there seems to have been the reverse process at work. Uh, initially, the entire nature was already a single organism, a giant polyp, says the drone, which has afterwards split itself into smaller living entities, that is, into the life forms as we know them. While the process of self-organization of living matter could potentially yield a sort of god, that is the only sort of god that is conceivable, says the draw in the Lombard's dream, um, the only one that is conceivable for materialist philosopher, the reverse process, which typically occurs at death, gives the philosopher hope of a materialist version of immortality, eternity, and afterlife. Now, I quote, when the polyp is divided into 100,000 parts, the original ungenerating animal no longer exists, but all of its elements are alive, end of quote. Now, the polyp that had formerly lived on mass now lives on detail, that is, in the living entities it has split itself into, or through them. Now, the same holds also for the living entities the polyp has split into, such as animals, humans, at the moment of their seeming death. Quote, the only difference I know between life and death, writes the draw, is that at present you live on mass, whereas dissolved and scattered into molecules, that is, after death, um, 20 years from now you will live on the time. End of quote. Now, maybe the molecules in which the draw will live after the death of the whole will not lose all memory of their previous state. 
maybe they will retain something of their former whole self. In this case, as the Druze fantasy goes on, he and his beloved Sophie Volnon um, may still be able to consummate their love, which apparently they have not consummated while living en masse, at least when they will be living on detail. That is, if he has not united with her while living en masse, there is still hope for his molecules to touch, feel, mix, and merge with those of his beloved. There is still hope for him to make up an etrocoma, a common being, or refer unto, to form a whole with his beloved after death. Now, this idea for lovers to have themselves buried next to each other may not be so foolish after all fantasizes did wrong. Now, the idea that everything is na in nature is linked. Um, this idea is one of the central tenets of this Diderotian Neo-Spinozist ontology. Now, this idea which left the waiting d'Alembert unimpressed when he first heard it in, from Diderot's mouth the evening before, that is in the first part of the dialogue, is enthusiastically adopted by the dreaming d'Alembert and spoken of as if it were his own. In his feverish sleep, he says, and I quote, this is a longer quote, I apologize for boring you, well, all beings intermingle with each other, consequently all species. Everything is in perpetual flux. Every animal is more or less a human being, every mineral is more or less a plant, and every plant is more or less an animal. There is nothing fixed in nature. Everything is more or less one thing or another, more or less earth, more or less water, more or less air, more or less fire, more or less of one kingdom or another. Therefore, nothing is of the essence of a particular thing. No, there is no doubt, since there is no quality which any being does not share in. And because it's the greater or smaller ratio of this quality which has made us attribute it to one being to the exclusion of another. And you talk about individuals, you poor philosophers. Forget about your individuals. Answer me this. Is there an atom in nature which is exactly similar to another atom? No. Don't you agree that everything is connected in nature and that it's impossible that there should be a gap in nature's chain? Then, what do you want to say with your individuals? There are no individuals. No, there are none. There is only one great individual, that is the whole. In that whole, as in a machine or some animal, you may give a certain name to a certain part, but if you call this part of the whole an individual, you are making as great a mistake as if you called the wing of a bird or feather of that wing an individual. And you talk of essences, you poor philosophers. Forget about your essences and so on. Now, end of quote. Now, in the reverse eyes, everything in nature is linked to such an extent that the whole of nature is one single individual. Now, furthermore, nature is the only true individual. Particular beings by themselves are not true individuals, but rather parts of a much wider whole or totality, le tout, that is nature or material universe as the great individual. Now, how closely the particular beings are linked up into the great individual can perhaps best be seen in D'Alembert's description of his own ontological status within the whole. He says, change the whole and you will necessarily change me but the whole is changing constantly. Already in one of his previous delirious babblings, we heard um, D'Alembert say, tout change, tout passe, il n'y a, a que le tout qui reste. Everything changes, everything passes away, only the whole remains. 
Now here, Delaware apparently comes to understand that this general principle is valid also for him, who is himself no less a part of the whole or of the great individual than any other being. Now, incidentally, this passage strongly is strongly reminiscent of Spinoza, who, in the second part of his Ethics, writes that, and I quote, the whole of nature is one individual whose parts, that is to say, all bodies vary in an infinite, in an infinite, infinite, infinite ways without any change of the whole or individual, and so on, end of quote. Now, with regard to the whole, which they form, the parts are desubstantialized to such an extent that particular beings, being is but the sum of a certain number of tendencies, says the drum, and its life within the great individual, but a succession of actions and reactions, and within the great individual, nothing is really born or dies. So birth, life, decay are merely changes of form, and we have no reason whatsoever to ascribe more importance to one form over the other, and so forth. Now, according to the drum, there is only one substance in the universe, that is matter. All particular beings are modes of or transient changing forms of the only existing substance. Now, not only our body, but our thoughts or ideas too are, strictly speaking, modifications of matter, since the soul that produces them is itself nothing other than a properly organized body or a modification of matter. That is to say, every idea that occurs in my mind is at the same time a, mo a modification of the great individual, that is the, the great individual, whose part is my body and therefore also my mind. Now, although the draws, great individual is an extended thing, the same can be said of it that, for example, the Arbe said of Spinoza's God, um, says Spinoza's God, like Spinoza's God, the draws, great individual too, is a being who is, quote, modified at the same time by the thoughts of all mankind. End of quote. Now, although the draws great individual is clearly not a true material god, that is, a god who would be an effect of the material universe in the same way as the material soul is an effect of bodily organization, namely, what to some extent spoiled this otherwise neat, near Spinoza's picture of the whole, that is, the nature or the material universe considered as a single great individual, is the fact that for Diderot, there is no such thing as la conscience de tout, the consciousness of the whole, as he called it in his thoughts on the interpretation of nature, while supposedly arguing against Maupertui and his form of materialism. Now, the dreaming d'Alembert is nevertheless, as portrayed by Diderot, is nevertheless subjected to nature, that is, to the whole whose part he is, to such an extent that it appears as if it is not he himself who speaks and acts, but it is rather nature, or the great individual, that speaks and acts through him. Now, the dreaming d'Alembert says, and thus thinks, he would most certainly never say or do if it depended on him. First, in his dream, d'Alembert expounds, as if it were his own philosophical theory, that he, as a convinced Cartesian spiritualist dualist, most certainly rejected. That is materialist monism. Second, in the midst of his delirious the delirious materialist monologue, he begins to masturbate in the presence of his mistress, Mademoiselle de Respinas. Now, the medical doctor, who is otherwise openly enthusiastic about the philosophy expounded by D'Alembert in his dream, finds this kind of action in the company of such an attractive young lady as Mademoiselle de Respinas, one of pure madness. 
thus indicating clearly that D'Alembert would most likely go about the acting question differently if it depended upon his will. Now, while this unmistakably, unintentional, involuntary act of D'Alembert's might at first seem to be rather out of place in a formal philosophical treatise, it is actually entirely consistent with the spirit, with the spirit of philosophy unintentionally and unknowingly expounded by D'Alembert in his dream. Namely, D'Alembert masturbates while he's speaking about the so-called miracle of life, that is about spontaneous generation, about various forms of sexual and asexual reproduction, or in short, about the ways material organization reproduces itself. At the moment, his philosophical reflections on life of matter reach a climax he himself experiences a sexual climax. That is, his body literally produces the living matter. Now, does not the fact that, that, that D'Alembert's involuntary talk about the great whole of work of nature, about life of matter, and so forth, coincides with his no less involuntary production of living matter, or with nature's true act of creation in miniature, make it appear as if nature literally reproduces itself and its life through D'Alembert's body, that is, through one of its parts. That is, the upshot of the scene is not that D'Alembert's body imitates nature and stages its creative power and so on, but rather that nature itself literally creates the living matter through D'Alembert and thus propagates itself. Moreover, does it not also seem as if it is nature or material organization itself that, through the mind it developed in D'Alembert, reflects on itself? Namely, in the first dialogue, D'Alembert, as a thinking being, has been shown to be nothing other than an effect of so-called material agents and purely mechanical operations. Now, since for Diderot there is no consciousness of the whole, the whole thinks about itself through the consciousnesses of its parts. Thus, when D'Alembert famously solves the so-called problem of precession of the equinoxes, um, in Diderot's eyes, this must mean as much as saying, as much saying that, as much as saying that. Through astronomer and mathematician D'Alembert, the great individual or the material universe comes to understand itself and its own laws, and that therefore cosmology and astronomy are nothing other but the universe's knowledge of itself. Now, similarly, when D'Alembert unknowingly advances the philosophy of materialist monism, that is, the philosophical theory, which is contrary to his spiritualist dualism, does it not seem as if it is not he who is theorizing about the material universe, but rather that it is the material universe that is theorizing about itself through D'Alembert, and that therefore materialist monism is nothing but the philosophical theory that matter, as the only existing substance in the universe, has about itself. And finally, if we include into this reading D'Alembert's dream itself, that is the theoretical philosophical treatise, in which Diderot formulates and develops the philosophy of materialism, does it not seem as if, through the, this treatise of Diderot, which is widely considered to be the pinnacle of philosophy of materialism, nature itself writes its own theory, or as if matter is developing its own philosophy? Now, uh, uh, this idea is, to, just to show that this idea is not so out of place, so outlandish as it might seem on, on, at first sight, let me just state the following. Now, in his youth, Diderot, he's already tied with the idea um, of a whole that thinks through its parts 
and consequently with the idea of a being who at first takes himself to be an autonomous thinking subject and then comes to realize with horror that ideas in his mind, in his mind are not really his. Or in other words, that it is not he himself who thinks the ideas in his mind, who, who, who is thinking his thoughts, but it is rather the whole whose part he is that is thinking through him. Now, in one of his early and lesser-known works, namely so-called La Promenade du Skeptique, the so-called Skeptic's Walk, that perhaps should be the translation, yeah. um, Diderot presents an eccentric sage, now the so-called metaphysical egoist, who believes himself to be the only existing being in the universe. While all other beings exist merely as ideas in his mind, that is, as modes of his thought, which are entirely dependent upon his will. Now, in a word, he believes that he's alone in the universe, and he does understandably take himself to be nothing less than a god of his universe. Now, firmly believing that his thought is the cause of the existence of all being, this sage is convinced that, for example, uh, that Diderot's example, that Roman poet Virgil is nothing other than an idea which refers on to nothing, outside of, uh, that is to say, to nothing outside his mind. That is, the egoist, or his mind, is the only substance there is, and Virgil is merely a mode of his thought. Now, accordingly, the egoist claims to be the author of the ideas constituting Virgil's Aeneid. <laughs> so it was not Virgil who composed the Aeneid, but it was rather the egoist philosopher himself who created both in his thought, both Virgil and his epic. So, now, when Virgil, who exists solely as a mode of thought of the egoist sage's thought, when he came up with any one of the ideas constituting the innate, it was in fact the sage, it was in, in fact the egoist sage who came up with that idea. That is to say, it was the egoist sage who composed the innate through Virgil. Now, while writing the skeptic's walk, uh, Diderot could hardly have failed to notice the obvious implication that in accordance with the metaphysical theory of the egoist sage he is portraying at this particular moment, he himself, Diderot himself, and the book he was writing should be considered a part of the egoist mind, a mode of his thought, and that strictly speaking, it is not he who is writing about the egoist metaphysics, but rather the egoist himself who is developing his own metaphysics through him, that is, through Diderot. Now, this should, I believe, hold all the more for D'Alembert's dream. Now, um, while Diderot would be unlikely to take himself to be nothing other than an idea in the egoist mind, a mode of his thought that is a part, that is a part of that whole he writes about in the skeptic's walk, he did, on the, other, on the other hand, he did think of himself as a part of the great whole he writes about in D'Alembert's dream. Now, just as it, in the skeptic's walk, it is the egoist that develops his own metaphysics through Diderot, so too in D'Alembert's dream, it is nature or the great individual or matter as the only existing substance that contemplates itself and expounds its own theory or philosophy through Diderot. Strictly speaking, Diderot is no more the author of D'Alembert's dream than in the skeptic's walk, Virgil is the author of the Aeneid. Just as the philosophy of a mind who believes himself to be alone in the world or who believes he is himself the entire universe, can only be the most radical version of spiritualism, that is, metaphysical egoism or spiritual monism, so too the philosophy of matter as the only existing substance that exists in the universe can only be one of materialist monism. <laughs>
Now, if the universe forms a whole, Diderot writes in his Thoughts on the Interpretation of Nature, there is always a possibility that the perceptions of its constituent parts will fuse into a single perception, and the particular consciousnesses into that consciousness of the whole, the so-called la conscience de tout. This infinite set of perceptions is, of course, nothing other than the world soul. And in this case, Diderot goes on, the world could be God. Like Spinoza's God, the material God of that sort would not be thinking any thoughts unthought by us, since he is nothing other than an infinite set of perceptions or consciousness of the whole, that is, nature's or great individual's consciousness of itself, formed by consciousnesses of its parts, in the same way as human minds constitute the infinite intellect of Spinoza's God, that is, the knowledge that takes nature as its object. Now, of course, this kind of material God, for which Diderot cannot hide his enthusiasm even when he supposedly rejects it, is not the creator or cause of the universe, but its effect in the same way as the material soul is an effect of bodily organization. Just as internally diversified and complex matter making up the human body develops its own soul, which is not a spiritual entity distinct from the body that, produ that produced it, but as the drug puts it, proportion de corps, a portion of the body, and therefore material, so properly organized matter making up the universe as a whole can develop its own mind too. And this kind of soul, the so-called world soul or universe soul, again, will not be a spiritual entity distinct from the body that produced it, that is, from the material universe. But, as Diderot puts it, portion de l'univers, that is to say, portion of the universe, and therefore material. Thus, in Diderot's eyes, none of the two souls, neither the human one nor the world soul, is a discrete, substantial unity in entity in itself, that is, an entity entering the body from without, human soul, or, or creating the universe outside itself, that would be the case for God, but rather a constituent part of the body itself or the universe, and as such, it cannot exist without the body or universe, um, and so on. Just as without the body there is no human soul, so too without the world there is no world soul, or in other words, without the universe there is no God. As a portion of the universe, understandably, the material God would be subject of vicissitudes, he would grow old and die, and so forth. Now, this mortal God, to borrow the expression from Hobbes, a well-known expression, expression from Hobbes, would be like a giant spider. That's one of the, one of the metaphors um, developed during the second part of the dialogue. Um, would be like a giant spider sitting in the center of its web with its threads extending throughout the entire universe. Um, now, this spider metaphor is it's introduced by Mademoiselle de l'Espinasse in order to illustrate the relationship between the meninges, that is the membrane that envelops the brain, and the threads, that is to say nerves, leading to the surface of her body. Now, in the metaphor, the threads of the web that the spider draws out of its bowels and back, again, are a sensitive part of itself. That is, the spider is not distinct from its web, but continuous with it, just as the material God is not distinct from the universe, but continues with it. Now, just as the spider senses all that happens anywhere in, on the web, so God knows all that happens in the universe. Now, this material God, in short, is like the meninges of the world. 
Now the drone most likely owes this um, comparison between God and spider and between the universe and the spider web uh, to the article on Spinoza in Per Bale's uh, Historical and Critical Dictionary um, in the first of um, in the series of remarks that accompanied this article, the, the longest article um, entry in the uh, in the dictionary. Um, Bell quotes a description from François Bernier's work, it's been translated into English, tra Travels into the Mogul Empire, of a Hindu deity that is said to have produced from his own substance not only the souls, but, quote, also generally everything material or corporeal in the universe. This production is not formed simply after the manner of efficient causes, but as a spider which produces a web from its own navel and withdraws it at pleasure. The creation, then, is nothing more than an extraction or extension of the individual substance of God, um, of those filaments which he draws from his own bowels. And in like manner, destruction is merely the recalling of that divine substance and filaments into himself, so that the last day of the world Will be, the will, be, uh, will be the general recalling of these, those filaments which God has before drawn from himself, forth from himself. Now, while this comparison between God and spider and between the universe and the spider web, it may well work for the Hindu deity. It is, of course, misleading with, with, uh, with regard to the draws material God, namely the material universe may be said to be an extraction or extension of the Hindu deity, while in the case of the gross material god, it is rather the reverse. The material god is an extraction or extension of the material universe. Now, in, in, in an important aspect, the material god of D'Alembert's dream would fall short of the god of traditional theism. For example, though through his, through his identity with all things in nature, this material god, of course, would be aware of all that happens in the universe, and in this respect, he would uh, resemble um, Malbranche's Adam, who before the fall was aware of the slightest movement of the smallest particles of his blood and bodily, bodily humors, and was thus with regard to his own body as all-knowing, as God is all-knowing with regard to the universe. Furthermore, through his memory, this material God would know all that has happened in the past. About the future, however, he would only be able to form conjectures that were likely, that were likely but liable to error. So in his knowledge of the future, this God would then resemble us, the ordinary mortals, who are trying to guess what is going to happen inside ourselves, for example, at the tip of our foot or our head. Now to pass on to 25th century materialism. Now, although in Diderot's eyes, nature, uh, nature, um, or the material universe undoubtedly does form a whole. As we've seen, everything in nature is linked, is linked as in a machine or in a living organism, so that consequently the whole of nature is a single great individual. Nevertheless, for Diderot, there was no consciousness of the whole. That is, there was no world soul, and the world, according, is not God. The world has not got its meninges. In the material universe, there is no giant spider with the threads of its web extending out to everything. The, who would know all that happens in the universe in the same way we know what is going on inside our bodies? But this should not be taken to mean that in the past there has never been, or that in the future there will never be such a spider, 
as the spiral metaphor is commented upon the, by the medical doctor Bordeaux. That is, for Diderot, it is quite possible that in the past there has been, or that in the future there will be, such a consciousness of the whole. Now, is not Diderot's and Lambert's monument, monumental encyclopedia as a classified corpus of universal, no, universal knowledge, as a systematically ordered set of all ideas, ever thought by humanity about itself and its world, is it not this attempt at constructing precisely such natures or material universes knowledge of itself, or a substitute for the non-existing, non-existing la conscience de tout, for the non-existing consciousness of the whole? The whole that does not think any thoughts unthought by its parts can hardly know more about itself than its parts know about itself, uh, know about it. Now, in the 18th century, then, the universe could hardly have known more about itself than the encyclopedia knew about it at the time. So, had there been a consciousness of the whole, it would most likely know about the universe just as much as the encyclopedia knows about it. Now, hence, perhaps, the near mythical status enjoyed by the encyclopedia. That is, by this recent dictionary of the sciences, arts, and skills, as its full title reads, in the 18th century. Now, and it was believed, that, as it was believed at, in, at the time, the encyclopedia was going to enjoy this mythical status for the long centuries to come. Now, already in the 1750 prospectus, announcing its publication, The Encyclopédie was seen by Diderot, its main editor and the author of more than 5,000 articles, as a permanent, quote, sanctuary of human knowledge, as a book of all books, that is, as a book that might replace entire libraries. I quote for illustration. Now, this word, work might replace a library in all fields of knowledge to the man in the street and in all fields except his own to a professional scientist. Now, at one point, Diderot regrets the fact that the ancient Egyptians, Chaldeans, Greeks, and Romans have not passed their knowledge on to us in the form of an encyclopedic work. And then goes on to say, I quote again, let us then do for the future that which we regret the past centuries have not done for our own century. We dare say that if the ancients had carried through the encyclopedia as they carried through so many other great things, and if that manuscript alone had escaped the, from the famous library of Alexandria, it would have been capable of consoling us for the loss of all others." End of quote. And that is precisely what happened. As one of the rare books to have escaped the flames, the Encyclopédie replaced entire libraries and became a book of all books, at least in contemporary fiction. Namely, in Louis-Sébastien Mercier's futuristic novel entitled, uh, in English translation, The Year 2440. Now, first published in 1771 and nowadays more or less forgotten, this wonderfully clever novel tellingly shows just how mythical this status of the encyclopedia must have been at that period. Now, to very briefly summarize, in the novel, the narrator falls asleep one night in 1768 and wakes up in his dream in the year 2440, when he is, he is exactly 700 years old. And while strolling around the city, around Paris, 
he notices that the Paris of the future has changed dramatically. It's become an enlightened utilitarian fantasy, fantasy come true. Um, and by this, of course, by the 25th century, the ideas of the French Enlightenment, most notably those disseminated by Diderot and Alembert's Encyclopedia, have clearly triumphed. If um, we take just a quick look at one of those ideas, for example, how that we find in Encyclopedia and then how it reverberates in, in, um, in Diderot's own work and in this, um, and in this 25th century. Um, just as a, to take as an example, the idea um, coming from Diderot and Alembert, they, they preceded Bentham for, for, uh, for, quite some, for, for quite some time, namely the idea that the best way to study human anatomy is through dissection of cadavers. Both Diderot and Alembert, in their encyclopedia articles Anatomy and Cadavre, passionately advocate this idea. Now, in Diderot's view, for example, the practice of what he calls l'art de disséquer, the art of dissection, he says, is necessary for a l'art de guérir, the art of healing, to flourish, and the best anatomist, he says, will certainly be the best physician. D'Alembert, in the article Cadavre, says, that the cadavers are the only books in which one can properly study anatomy, and the draw in his part of the same article suggests that priests be allowed to receive the bodies of the dead only from the hands of the anatomist. That is only after they have been dissected and even proposes a law prohibiting the burial of a body before its opening. Now, incidentally, Diderot even set a personal example for his ideas on anatomy and dissection in Encyclopédie, uh, namely, he left his own body after death to be dissected by anatomists, thus literally giving body to his ideas on anatomy and dissection. As his daughter Angelique writes in her memoirs, my father believed that it was wise to open the bodies of the dead. He believed that this procedure was of use to the living. Um, more than once he urged me to have him opened after his death, and so he was indeed opened up. End of quote. Now, this idea also reverberates throughout the Lambert's dream. Thus, for example, it's omnipresent, literally. Uh, for example, Bourdieu at one point complains that there is not enough dissection being done, and then goes on to give a detailed description of several dissections performed on all sorts of bizarrely deformed dead bodies. <clears throat> and in the course of the dialogue, we even witness, <laughs> no, that's a, that's a good one, we even witness an imaginary dissection performed in her thought by Mademoiselle de l'Espinasse on the living brain of Isaac Newton, for example. Now, in the Mercier's novel, to come to the point, uh, this idea is reflected as follows. At the Sorbonne, which was originally, of course, established as the faculty of theology, they no longer study metaphysics and theology, and theology and analyze silly propositions, and, but instead, as the visitor from the past is pleased to notice, they teach a course dealing with a subject of much greater use to the humanity. Namely, the entire Sorbonne University has been converted into a giant anatomy theater where all sorts of cadavers are being dissected around the clock. As if they were acting on the ideas expounded by Diderot and D'Alembert uh, in their encyclopedia articles Anatomy and Cadavre, I quote from Mercier, the sage anatomist search the remains of the dead for a, for a means to diminish the physical pains of the living. They are trying to discover the hidden origins of our cruel diseases and every incision with the scalpel into the insensible cadavers is made with an eye to the benefit of posterity. End of quote. On the whole, the France of the future, 
the France in the 25th century, is principally characterized by its attitude towards the printed word. They have, in the 25th century, burned most of the books from the previous century. For example, they have burned Malbranche, Nicole, Arnaud, and so on. While the few that they deemed worth preserving, for example, Descartes, Montaigne, Pierre Charon, were first carefully, and I quote, rewritten according to the true principle of morals, and then reprinted in the form of abrégé, that is in an abbreviated form. And one of the very small number of books to have escaped the flames is none other than Diderot's and D'Alembert's Encyclopédie, <laughs> which they have even elevated into a sort of secular utilitarian Bible. As a book containing all necessary knowledge, the encyclopedia is being used by children, by children as a primer in elementary school already. Now, on the other hand, in the society of the future, literally everyone is writer or an author. For example, everyone writes down their thoughts. That's what the visitor from the past learns. Um, now, everyone writes down their thoughts at all the time, and before their death. Their most important thoughts are collected into a book that is then being read out loud on the day of their funeral. Now, the reading of the deceased person's own thoughts, is, and I quote, is the only eulogy he receives. And the book of the immortal lessons, which is all that remains of him in this world, is the only thing the future generations will remember him by. Thus, in this utilitarian society of the 25th century, Everyone literally composes the funeral oration to himself or herself in advance, and at the same time, so to speak, creates a monument to himself or herself. And they explain this unusual custom to the visitor from the past as follows. While painting and statues represent only the deceased person's bodily features, the book containing all the purest thoughts he has ever thought in his entire life is considered to be nothing less than the L'âme du défunt, that is to say, the soul of the deceased. And now comes my big point. Therefore, is not at the time when the material God is not yet, or no longer there, or in the time when the material God is either still an infant deity or already a superannuated deity, as David Hume would put it, is not the encyclopedia precisely such a soul of the world? Thank you.
here exemplified by the idea of like the uh, imminence of the material world at one great individual. Um, so, and in this model, we have change, but we don't have time. That is to say, like things are transformed, but they're not negated. Mm? And that's also why you write the link to Spinoza, because Spinoza is, of course, the classic example of someone who thinks change, but who doesn't think time. That is to say, nothing in substance is ever negated, you have changed without it, but on the level of substance, nothing is lost. So, and what I think that for materials thinking to advance, I think it has to think the negativity of time intrinsic to materiality. Uh, so what interests me in relation to your talk then is uh, to what extent we can locate contradictions of this paradigm in Diderot even while he confirms it. And there's one juncture in the talk when you say, well, what spoils this neo-spinocent picture is um, that there's no conscience to in, in the room, there's no consciousness of the whole. So on the one hand we have, there's a great individual, but there's no consciousness of the whole. Which was very intriguing to me, but then I didn't see you pursue this in the paper. And uh, on the contrary, towards the end, when you recount uh, what happens in the novel, uh, you conclude by saying that the object of belief could be this consciousness of the whole, if I understood you correctly. But the material in the novel earlier, when actually the, the sensibility is not sufficient, all these people have to record their own thoughts and what they are, precisely because they're passing away, because they're being negated, they create two relations for themselves, which actually testifies to that the sensibility or any other consciousness could never be complete, could never be the soul of the world. And um, that's the direction I would be interested in pushing, but it seemed to me instead you went for the latter option. So um, I wonder if you could. Mm -hmm. So what precisely is your objection? No. Oh, my, my objection is, well, I don't understand if, if what you said, your big point at the end, if, if the point really is that there could be a consciousness of the whole, here exemplified by the encyclopedia, and in that case, there is nothing that spoils the Spinoza's picture, or if there is something that spoils the, the near Spinoza's picture, like A, how that would be conceptually elaborated, B, how that could be traced in different respects. Yeah. No, no, no. Uh, I may have, uh, I may have not spoken clearly, but it's a substitute for the missing, for the non-existent consciousness of the whole encyclopedia. That's a poor substitute for what La Conscience de Tout perhaps would be. So that that's not a consciousness of the whole. It's a substitute. It's an attempt at constructing this um, this consciousness that uh, that it's not there. No. Yeah. But. Yeah, no, 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 but one should, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But one should not co one should not confuse what you know what they are writing. You know, it's just their lessons, you know, learned through their lives, you know, for posterity and so on. This has nothing to do with the knowledge which is being perpetuated by uh, by encyclopedia. It's their personal insights, personal wisdoms, and so on. So it's that's that's not knowledge. It's on the same level. Okay. Yeah. But not, how does it, not much more is said in the novel about that particular content of those books that everyone is writing. Yeah. So that clarifies your reading of the novel. However, I still wonder, you just said in passing that there is no consciousness of the whole in Diderot, yeah. and how that sits with the assertion of the whole as a great individual, and why there is no consciousness of the whole. What is the reason for Diderot? 
why you can't have a consciousness of the whole. Yeah, that is a that's a that's um, um, the, the yeah the exact reason would uh, this is this is coming from a polemic with Mopertui at that particular time. That is his objections to Mopertui, and uh, uh, however, how I read his remarks is um, is that um, he is you know even that even even if he's opposed to a Mopertui's idea. In other of his works, you know, in the, at this particular work, in this particular D'Alembert's ranting, in D'Alembert's dream, what I think is coming through is that he is secretly, you know, like being fascinated by this idea of the material universe at some point, you know, like, you know, materializing itself into a god, you know. So he was rejecting this, there is no consciousness of the whole and so on. But maybe, you know, he was like secretly, you know, like expecting, maybe this, he's, he never says this is impossible. You know? He says there's not been, there has not, uh, it's not that there is not, that not that there has not been and that, that there is not going to be. It's, a, it's still possible, you know, that this is going to happen. It's not, the universe such as it is, is not integrated enough at that particular moment to yield, you know, a God, a material God. But he's not excluding the possibility that this is going to happen at some point. And what I, how, and how I perceive this particular point is that this is, you know, like an old student of, of theology, you know, regretting the loss of, I don't know, the object of his study, uh, you know, uh, and replacing it with this, you know, with this fantasy of this material God. No, uh, uh, so it's even more democratic. Nobody will see it, you know. For example, if you know at the moment that you know, the, uh, how does the idea of building uh, blocks, you know, of building this unity of unities, you know, uniting themselves into an ever higher entities. For example, at that particular stage, you know, and this is what I'm trying, you know, to show through this D'Alembert's, you know, losing. You know, uh, how does it being unaware of what he's doing, you know, and unknowingly uh, producing uh, this and that, is that, you know, how does it, you know, the, the condition for the consciousness of the whole, you know, to come about would be for each and every one of us, you know, to lose, you know, our former selves, you know. So we would, how does it, no longer function, you know. So it would be God, you know, that would be aware of all of us, you know. But that's at the price of the loss of each and everyone's particular consciousness. Because they're going to fuse, you know, and it's going to become a consciousness of the universe as, it's, as a unity in itself, with no longer this particular consciousnesses. So it's, I don't know, the universe may well turn itself into, how does it, into, into a giant god, but there is no, not, we are going to be around, but we are not going to be able to, how does it, to appreciate the sublime moment, yeah. Following up on this, I wanted to ask you a little bit more about how you understand the relationship of Diderot's materialism to Spinozism more generally as a philosophical and a historical category, because you made these allusions. Uh, you're describing Diderot's neo-Spinozist as a lot of thinkers contemporary and since have. But there were various strange tensions, it seems like, with what Diderot is doing with regard to Spinoza. For example, if Diderot says the world is totally matter, that he, he wants to have this, that, that there is just matter, that that is his claim, then that is actually, you know, that, that seems to be 
uh, in flagrant conflict with Spinozism. He says there's one substance, but that substance has two attributes, which are thought and extension, or thought and matter, and that these things actually uh, can never be reduced one to the other. So that seems to be a fundamental re revision of a Spinozist principle. But then on the other hand, when you say that Diderot does away with uh, this idea of world consciousness or the totality itself having consciousness of itself, it seems like he's sort of finishing Spinoza's rationalism for him, that he's trying to evacuate uh, the concept of God or recognize it just as, as rhetoric, because if you take the God out of Spinoza, that's basically what you have. It's saying, you know, it's not necessary at the end of the day to posit this total consciousness that then is coextensive with the world. Um, so those are just two sort of points of uh, relation or contrast, and I just wanted to know more about how you see that relationship. Yeah, you Okay, uh, so I would not, how to say, agree that it, this is a revision, you know. This is basically just a Spinozism, this is a Spinozistic God with a single attribute. That is with a God, uh, with uh, the but attribute. That's not Spinozism, that's a single attribute. No, 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 of course, of course. But there, I briefly mentioned this metaphys metaphysical egoist, and this spiritual monism. You know, I, um, how to say, this is, this is a twin paper of, how to say, you know, of... Uh, in, in an exercise, you know, dealing with the, uh, with this metaphysical egoism, when you have, you know, this sage, the one that, brief, that I briefly mentioned, um, who is the one, you know, this, that is thinking thoughts of all of us, you know, and how to say, by a short clip, you can, how to say, see where this leads, you know, this is Spinoz Spinozism, or Spinozistic God with a single attribute, with the attribute of thought, you know, so you have well, there are both attributes, but you know they are just being you know pursued in the separate, separate, uh, separate um, writings. Yeah, but uh, yeah, yeah, this is that's as close as I would uh, how to say be able to bring the draw to Spinozism. Yeah. Interesting. I mean, because it seems to me that the challenge of Spinozism is precisely to try to think in a way that does not collapse either into the spiritual egoist, where you have the single attribute of thought, or the, or the whatever you want. Material, spiritualist materialist, we have a single attribute of matter, but precisely to think they're correlations with one another permanently. And that Diderot sort of opts for one, like forces this distinction. It, it, it just seems like it is a revision of Spinoza in other words. I mean, obviously, there are various readings that go on of Spinoza in the 17th century, and at this moment, it is the materialist reading uh, that, is, that is dominant. But uh, I, I find it interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you're completely correct, for example, because the, uh, the way the draw himself you know, uses, the, uses the expression Spinozist or Spinozismo, that's, that's, you know, materialism. It's atheism, basically. Yeah, I mean, atheism atheism yeah. and materialism, it has nothing to do with, with Spinoza himself. Right. Yeah, right. Right. I mean, Knox, do you think that collapsing the two attributes into a single attribute would be a prerequisite for having a properly <coughs> materialist Spinoza? Well, yes, yeah, if you're going to say that there's a singular attribute of, of material, if all there is is material, then you have to provide a materialist account of thought. But that's precisely what Spinoza does not do. I mean, he, he posits a prima facie at the outset that the, there's logically, rationally, a singular substance, but the substance is a concept, and it includes these, what he says, the infinite attributes, but we only know two. And of course, that's a major problem. Like, it seems like he just sort of declaims that we only know two. But the point is that they, they never do collapse one into another. And, and, uh, he never, the genetic account, of, there's no genetic account of how thought emerges out of material in Spinozism because it posits that it's coextensive from the outside. So I guess what I'm asking is, is it possible to see this as a sort of progressive materialist development of Spinozism, or do you think it's something that's like really lost there? 
No, I think one of the most powerful things is, is the evacuation of the world's soul. That, like Peter Rose basically saying, you don't. I mean, there's a controversy about how to read the concept of God in Spinoza, like how much it has in common with any kind of inherent concept of God, whether it's pantheist or transcendental or not. And what when Diderot basically says, okay, well, let's articulate Spinoza without the God, but insofar as he says there's just a singular matter and he doesn't give an account of the relation of thought to matter, then it seems like a regression. Since you've studied Spinoza's in the recent France, how do they handle it more recently, this problem of thought? Is there a general rule? Compared to Diderot, is there, is there a general contrast? Or? Well, there's, I mean, there's, there's various models about whether you retain this idea of the independence of thought from matter, but it's, it seems like a lot of the French rationalists sort of affirm that it must, thought must be independent of matter in order for it to relate to matter. And they sort of, they seem to sort of, they bracket or go away from an evolutionary <coughs> biology paradigm that tries to explain thought emerging out of matter. It's just, it's posited as a false problem. But Would any of them problems on materialists? Any of these more recent French uh, I'll just say I would. Um, yeah. But only precisely because it's it's not. Deleuze is actually elsewhere. Yeah, Deleuze is interesting. Peter, you know. I have a question along the same lines, but I wonder if you could just say a bit more about why the concept of matter did come to trump that of substance. Um, because it's such a so much more restricted for the reasons that Mark was saying. I mean, already in Spinoza, the Material attribute, I suppose, will be extension precisely rather than matter. And extension is much more abstract and requires geometry rather than even physics. Um, so, why does the term matter come to dominate? And to what extent is it actually a name for something more like what we would think of now as, say, material, in other words, something that could be manipulated, adapted, worked? And that the encyclopedia, for example, is, among other things, like a huge project for the working of matter. Yeah. No, um, no, one point um, would be that um, we should not Hansi, make too much you know, out of Diderot because you know, he was not a very subtle reader, you know. Uh, and you know, this, you know, this Spinoza's distinctions, this, it's me, you know, I'm projecting them, I'm discovering them into his, you know, in, in his writing. So it's, he's not you know, speaking this language, you know, so it's, that's how to say, that's, that's an approximation of the Spinozistic terminology, you know, but it's, that's me, I'm responsible for it, for its mistakes. So he's, he's not saying Spinoza at all? Sorry? He's not saying Spinoza? Things? No. No, 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 but he, 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 was, he was aware of Spinoza, right. he was acquainted with Spinoza, yeah? That was, uh, for example, the, uh, when you ask the colleague from Paris, yeah, it's, it's in the Vernier's book, Spinoza et la pensée française avant la révolution, there's a good chapter, you know, precisely on Spinoza and Diderot, which is, I, I guess, like, you know, like the last word on the subject, although it's an old book already, yeah, but, but there you see that it's, it's you know, Spinoza is a, a very sophisticated, you know, in his ontology, and so it's very elaborated. There's nothing, you know, of the kind in Diderot, you know, there's just matter, you know, forms, and, you know, it's, you know, my making sense, you know, out of this mess, you know, with, of Spinoza's concepts, yes. I guess I, I wonder about the status of um, consciousness in your presentation, because the idea is that um, 
no individual entity or no individual being can have consciousness of the whole. And in fact, the whole can't even have sort of total consciousness of itself. Uh, so what's the status of the, of the unconscious then? I mean, part of the, the form of Delamere's dream is that it is a dream. It's a sort of you know, production of the unconscious in the second half of the text. Um, so even if we can't, I mean, I wonder about the status of saying, uh, talking about the lack of conscious knowledge of the whole. Is one implication of the text that there's supposed to be something like some sort of unconscious, you know, apprehension of the whole? Um, and what would be the status of, of God vis-a-vis -vis that sort of the possibility of unconscious apprehension? For example, which could, you know, creep through uh, the testimony of all of these particular beings or entities constantly writing down, you know, their thoughts before they die. I mean, even if no one of them can have consciousness of the whole, do those somehow add up to a sort of collective unconscious of, of the whole. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, again, um, we should not read too much into the text itself. So, uh, no, the idea is, you know, about this, the draw, uh, no, about the D'Alembert. That's what, what, what was, uh, what interest, interested me in particular was, uh, not that he's, you know, that he's being unconscious, but, you know, I find this, you know, this particular moment, you know, of his, you know, speaking, babbling, you know, of material and how to say, buying into this materialist philosophy, which he, you know, normally rejected, and then masturbating and so on, you know, as an instance, you know, as an illustration of, you know, him not speaking, you know, his true self, you know, but like, you know, a matter speaking through him. Yeah, uh, that was basically the point that I was making. Yeah, so. Related to that, I mean, the, the scene, the masturbation scene is obviously, I mean, what you did with it was very interesting. No, I mean, because it seemed, I thought one way you were going to go with it was sort of the narcissism of the materialist dream. That, like, I mean, and how did you give this reading of it? Because the, was it whoever gives the critique, it says, well, there's this beautiful woman next to him. How, how it seems to be a uh, sort of ironic take on the notion of singularity against duality. I mean, is that part of it? That just that the substance alone can produce it. But of course, then the other reading is no, it actually does not result in in procreation. It is not a creative act. It's like a wasted act. It's a futile act that does not then lead to generative being. And so it seems like it's actually sort of an ironic critique of the singular materialism. It's like masturbating. It's not procreating. Yeah. <laughs> there, is no, there is no generation that comes after it. You know? yeah, yeah, yeah. No, because you know, this, this was just, you know, the, my reading of this masturbation scene is just, you know, a form of excusing the draw, you know, who's being constantly, you know, like scorned, you know, because on, on account of that particular scene, I mean, what I was desperately trying to show is that it makes sense, you know, in this kind of a treatise, and not yeah. that it's, you know, some kind of a, I don't know, a joke or anything. No, it makes perfect very much destroyed, mm -hmm. 
but even the concept of the body uh, or the dissection exactly or the solutions or the medical solutions and so on. So there is some uh, tension there. Uh, it's got a nice idea of the whole mm -hmm. <laughs> yep. and the nature uh, and the, rather than some outside control of it, but a sort of within. And also, if I can say, when you mentioned when you connected a bit with the Indian deities, I thought of the Buddhism, which doesn't have, which has a big nothing in a sense, and that sort of a conquering of that, not not helping this remove the pain <laughs> through medicine, but um, sort of conquering the pain. Mm -hmm. To vindicate myself a little bit, yeah, it's you know in this whole anatomy business, it's you know that I myself you know was surprised, you know, taken, you know, um, by surprise, you know, when reading all this stuff in Diderot and Alembert, because I was before that I was familiar with this Jeremy Bentham's Otto Eichen and um, which written in 1830s and with his ideas, you know. Uh, um, which were taken as novel at the time, but here the draw and the Robert preceded him, you know, by like I don't know, by you know, several decades, you know. So that's why I'm making, or it may seem that I'm making too much out of this anatomy and dissection uh, analogy. But in general, the Western culture in that way. It functions in that way, yes, yeah. I have no words of, of wisdom on the, the possible future of materialist theory. This was just my humble way, you know, to trying to make a serious philosopher out of the draw. So. <clears throat> Yeah. Uh. 
as I see it, I see it as I was uh, telling before, as you know, two different lines of Spinozism. You know, each and every one, every one of them pursuing its own course. You know, one a materialist, the other idealist. And the same story as I, as I try to develop on this uh, within the attribute of matter, that's how, or, or within the attribute of extension. Uh, was at that particular time, you know, through this metaphysical egoist that I was briefly mentioning. That's a character whom Diderot knew about, who appeared in, 17, oh, in 1704. You know, two or one or two of these uh, this extremist sages appeared in Paris who claimed themselves to be the only person existing in the universe, you know, who took themselves, you know, to be, you know, how to say, what whatever this great whole, you know, is or would be within, you know, this, this, within the attribute of matter, each of, each of them claim themselves to be, you know, within the attribute of thought. So that's how to say, it's 18th century is not, uh, which is of course normally, it's normally linked with this materialistic attitude and this materialistic course of philosophy. But it's, it's, it's at precisely, at, not, not even, not to mention George Berkeley, but even before George Berkeley, uh, that's in this first years, uh, first years of, of 18th century, there are these egoists, this ontological, ontological solipsist, you know, who are not just a joke, but there were two of them who were an existing historical figures. Yeah, so there, I mean, the, that's the strongest or the, the strongest opposition that uh, I can uh, produce it. Yeah. It's very simple. It's very simple. self-centered, self-absorbed behavior. That was one point. And the other, you know, the other meaning of this term is what was later, to, to what later became you know, known as solipsism. For example, you can find a clear-cut distinction of those two meanings of the term, of the term egoism in the Droz Encyclopedia. In the fifth volume, you have, on, in one column, you have the Jokur, uh, the Jokur uh, article on egoism, which is dealing with this ethical egoism, that is to say what we understand by egoism. And on the right column, you have the D'Alembert's article dealing with the so-called egoist, which is, of course, dealing with the metaphysical egoist, with, the, with those two persons claiming themselves to be the only existing beings uh, uh, in the world. So this is, that's, how to say, you know, in philosophy of 18th century, an egoist, it was, how to, it, that is just the same as saying uh, solipsist. Uh, solipsist is a, is a later addition. Nevertheless, I mean, the, okay. uh, it doesn't sound uh, very nice. So when we're using it, this term with a great passion, we could uh, maybe prove the injustice to that uh, uh, either real or supposed person. You know, when we, 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 we,
Egoism. Yeah. No, but how to say this? Well, yes, okay. I, I should have maybe explained that at the beginning. Okay. Yes, okay. I think I want to go back to Nathan's question about the, what you see as the future of materials philosophy in relation to science. And it seemed to me that actually your paper provided a very good answer to this in advance, like via Diderot. And I don't think there needs to be a humble defense of Diderot as a philosopher because I think it's actually very powerful. He's a, a magnificent philosopher precisely by introducing this notion of the historicity of science into science itself. And when you talk about how he says, you know, we have the encyclopedia, and it is a shame that the cultures before us, or these moments before us, did not produce an encyclopedia, mm -hmm. so that we can have this cumulative revisionary concept of science, or what constitutes the totality of knowledge at each point. And that's why there's an irony in the Mercier text that you go forward 700 years, and it's the same encyclopedia. Like, why does this happen? Like, if you're following Diderot's wishes, it seems like there should be a new encyclopedia 700 years from now. So there's that point, and then, but also. Precisely because Diderot like, jettisons the idea of an eventual world soul, and by extension to Telos, but retains the idea that this is how material science progresses, he is basically introducing a historical materialism or a historical concept of materialism that is completely, or in a way, sutured to science, completely connected to science. That the science will change, it will revise, it will go forward, and it will never reach a cumulative endpoint. And that in itself is materialist philosophy. Yeah. No, for example, this tension from the beginning of the 18th century between the materialism and, and, and spiritualism or idealism is being, you know, how, you know, it's uh, it's uh, it survived even in this novel. It's according to this novel, it's in the 25th century. On one hand, this 25th century, of course, it's it's like you know, the friends of the future is a society of of unius libri, of a single book. That is to say, the encyclopedia is the only book. But however, the material, how to say, the philosophical outlook, the philosophical beliefs of the people in the 25th century is not materialistic one, you know, because they have become spiritual, Cartesian spiritualists again. You know, they claim, you know, that how to say, the soul is immortal, and they have claimed to, how to say, to, um, to emendate the theory of metempsychosis and so on and so on. So it's the same tension as in the 18th century. On the one hand, you have this materialistic outlook in general and so on. But on the other hand, there is still, you know, soul. There are still spiritual people are basically, you know, as seen as a Cartesian, you know, um, as um, Cartesian substances, uh, like, you know, a soul being trapped into a material body. And of course, a soul distinct from the body and immaterial or spiritual one. So it's as if materialism can only only exist. I mean, this is like the Althusser thesis that Nathan's bringing up. It's materialism persists insofar as there is this resurgence or recurrence of an emphasis on spiritualism, on the soul, on the interiority, on the mind that exists in its relation to it, which seems very interesting. Yeah, no, and the irony goes further, because of his right, uh, this Louis, Louis Sebastien Mercier, he was on the side of the Jacob, he was in the, in the uh, French Revolution, yeah. We should probably go on close maybe the last question. Oh, well, no, 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 I was just jumping there. But is it the case in the novel, the, the futurist novel about the 25th century, that then there is a belief in the immortality of the soul? Yes. So why are they so obsessed with commemorating themselves? Why are they so obsessed with survival if they're immortal? Since you, you said that they spend all their time recording themselves because they're going to pass away and make these three orations. So if, if you actually believe you were immortal, that would be an inconceivable act because. Well, it's the values. 
No, 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 no. It's that what the modern novel says is that this particular piece of writing, that's the only thing that is going to be left behind them on this earth. That's what it's, that's what remains of them, but their souls are immortal, yeah. And why is it important what remains? I don't know, I, I just think it's, it's this, you know, utilitarian fantasy, you know, it's, you know. But is it the point that what becomes, the only thing that is of value in the 20th century is the interiority of ideas, and that's why it's not about having a statue or a painting that captures your body, but you said it's the, uh, retaining your ideas, because the ideas are the only things that matter. Well, it's a word, but like, they, 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 they are the only thing that are, that are of value. Yeah, so no. it's like that's the commemorative act in this world. Yeah. Yeah. No, again, <laughs> just to show my cards, you know, but my argument is, uh, no, this was, I, I, what, what made me interested in this particular point, you know, at the very end, you know, the people building their own monuments and so on in advance, because this is just, you know, idea which is, you know, very, very, very close to the one that I particularly like, that is the same to Bingham's one in Auto Icon. When people are obviously you know turned into their own you know monuments after that and into their own representation, everything represents only itself and so on. So this is a way, you know, it's leading already I think to that utilitarian position. Okay, well, let's uh, take a break before um, Grant Harmon's talk. Maybe let's say five after three or so to get some time rather than two. Thanks so much for your. your